folks? Welcome to the Silly Mismail podcast where we talk all things transformation. Uh, the world is going through the biggest transformation in the history of civilization, and we should actually talk about that, recognize it, uh, talk about the past, etc. With us, uh, and I'm hugely thrilled to have Daniel Kraft with us. Uh, Daniel, give us one minute on your background, and then we're going to delve into a million things from there. All right, the one-minute version. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm a traditionally trained sort of physician scientist, grew up in the D.C. area, got my start at the NIH in high school doing science fair projects. Uh, went to Brown, then to Stanford for medical school, um, got involved in stem cell research and early ages of the digital health revolution, did my residency at Mass General Hospital in both internal medicine and pediatrics, um, came back to Stanford for fellowships in hematology, oncology, bone marrow transplantation, uh, got involved in Stanford biodesign, inventing medical devices and more in digital health. Um, and uh, Salim and I met back in 2008 or so, and we uh, joined as founding faculty for Singularity University looking at the future of healthcare. So played a role there chairing medicine and uh, looking at this convergence of technologies as we'll talk about to reshape healthcare. And from that built a program uh, looking at the future called Exponential Medicine, now Next Med Health, which we'll talk about kind of like, how do we bring folks together to catalyze this new health age in, with all the new technologies and possibilities? And then on top of that, I've got a new startup called Digital.Health. I have a venture fund. We invest in early stage healthcare innovation. And uh, been sharing the XPRIZE pandemic and health alliance. So working on new XPRIZES, old XPRIZES, and how do we connect the dots to solve for both the pandemic and healthcare around the planet. Okay. And and you have the world record for having more words per minute and slides per minute of all of our singularity faculty from the old days. So uh, so let's, let's delve into it. You know, you talk about, I remember your slides around the way we used to do healthcare Right. We used to bleed people thinking that was the right way of doing it. Then we moved into um, um, genomics and now we have digital health. Can you talk about that transition and how you navigate it? How do you as a doctor trained in one domain bridge over to this new domain? How do you keep your mind fresh that way? But first of all, talk about the transition in the domain that you're seeing, because you've got a, a, a front seat view as to the transitions that we're seeing in healthcare, unlike almost anybody in the world. And so there's kind of nobody to talk about this better than you around what the future looks like. Well, what the future looks like versus where we are today is still a, a big gap, right? We're still in 2023, the future, using fax machines to communicate our key healthcare data, which slowed things down during the pandemic. I had a cardiac study done at Stanford a year ago. I got my results on a CD-ROM for on a CD-ROM. I don't even own a CD-ROM player anymore. So <laughs> we're still stuck in architecture of the past. We're using public health measures like masks from 100 plus years ago. So the architecture of healthcare is still a bit stagnated and healthcare is slow to change, partly because of culture, partly because of misaligned incentives. However, you know, COVID has acted as a, a catalyst to enter this sort of new health age with more virtualized care. We many have experienced our first telehealth visits. We're now in the age of having home diagnostic tests that took a long time to evolve, but COVID was a catalyst. mRNA vaccines, not just for uh, infectious diseases, but for cancer, for Alzheimer's, other elements are starting to come onto the scene. So it's really really now the art of the possible with everything from chat GPT to low cost genomics to internet of medical things to big data to psychedelics, all are kind of converging and super converging and giving us the opportunity to shift us from this world of sick care, where we tend to get very intermittent data collected once a year in the clinic or the ER. Uh, and we're quite reactive, we wait for problems to be a, a new era of much more continuous flow of information, whether it's from your ring or your smart home or your smart mattress or your camera and allow us to be much more proactive, preventative, um, 
thinking about health span and longevity, but also diagnose diseases much earlier and therapies, which will be much more tuned and specific and, and insightful and with, with knowledge that's crowdsourced, not just based on some 10 year old double blind placebo controlled trial uh, in some Caucasian population in Massachusetts. So there's a lot of opportunity to, to shift us, but we're still stuck in pretty stagnated, often broken healthcare systems with lots of disparities. Um, but now's the time to, as we're gonna talk about, to, to, to move things forward. And, and to set the stage a bit for, to give people a little bit of a background context, uh, for 10, 12 years, we've been doing talks via Singularity University on the future of healthcare. You have a wonderful framing called the four Ps, right? Um, can you describe each of those for a sense, which I think will give a good baseline for the rest of the conversation, then we can bridge to the to the to where we go from here from there. Does that make sense? Sure. Well, the four Ps coined by a real leader in healthcare and innovation, Dr. Leroy Hood, will be keynoting NextMed Health in March, is that healthcare should be much more, number one, personalized. We still are very much in a one-size-fits-all metric. Salim and I will take the same dose of a, an aspirin or a statin, even though we might have very different genetics and pharmacokinetics and other elements. Uh, so personalized. Uh, proactive, uh, not waiting for disease to happen. It might be based on your genetic risk factors or your sociome or other information. How do we end up being, uh, you know, waiting for the, not waiting for the disease to happen, but start preventing that and optimizing your health, not just the, the disease side. Uh, so uh, personalized, proactive, preventative, that goes back to this other realm. We can do a much better job of uh, extending our healthy lifespans by smartly tuning our prevention. Sometimes that's using our genetic information. Sometimes that's going to be sorting and learning from other patients or individuals like us instead of everybody getting their colonoscopy at age 40 or mammogram at age 40 or 50. So those things can shift. Um, personalized, proactive, participatory. We're now in an era where we can all become data donors, just like when we drive with Google Maps or ways we're sharing our data, we build a better map around our driving experience. We can all be participants in, in some ways, in safe ways, sharing healthcare-related information and data and unlocking knowledge from the, the planet. Um, and personalized, proactive, participatory, and preventative. Uh, preventative. I think they're all in there. Yeah. But the idea that we're not going to be just in the sick care mindset, which is where the money is today, uh, and to shift the incentives to this personalized, proactive, preventative, participatory, and hopefully much more accessible and equitable healthcare systems of the future. Do you see any, uh, you know, we have different healthcare systems between the US or Canada, or Europe, et cetera, et cetera. Do you see any healthcare systems in the world that you think are the most furthest advanced in this, in this new realm? Well, even in the U.S., there's thousands, hundreds of different systems, most of which don't work well. They're pretty much based on reimbursement models and who pays for what out of some insurance company. You've got the NHS, which has its challenges. They're going on strike right now with some of the docs. But you in Canada, where you have some national health elements that, as a safety net, I mean, the I think the second leading cause of bankruptcy in the United States is a medical issue. Uh, lots of disparities there. So that while NHS and Canadian issues have some challenges, you might need to wait longer for your elective uh, hip transplant or uh, uh, total knee replacement. Um, there is the huge possibility to be much more, um, have an underlying basis to keep people healthier. Mm. Um, so in terms of systems, I think there's lots of examples. Sometimes nation states like Singapore, they have a lot of integrated data. They have a, a population that's highly educated and on top of being engaged in their care. 
Israel with a lot of startup nation, a lot of healthcare innovation coming out of, they have platforms like Clalit where they can integrate that information and use it for public health. That's where we based a lot of our learnings on what vaccines were working for COVID, uh, as well as building that proactive personalized uh, healthcare system that we would want to see. So there's no one perfect place and there's no one pay perfect payment model. Uh, I just do think that with the tools we have now, let alone what's coming next, we have the opportunity to really reshape the systems, but also how we connect the dots between data insights, knowledge, to, to, to change who gives care, how it happens, and, and the whole systems that can architect around that. And basically to transform this, we need a systems level uh, transformation, right? Because, uh, you know, one of the things we talk about, and you've heard me mention this, at a, it is the corporate immune system. You try anything disruptive, the antibodies in that community, that company, that institution attack you. Ironically, healthcare has the transforming healthcare evokes some of the worst immune system problems anywhere. I put healthcare kind of third, second is education, and number one is religion, where they'll pretty much kill you if you try and change the religion. How do you think about the systemic change needed in healthcare, and where do you start with that transformation? I mean, just like almost all these other fields, it's follow the incentives, right? Uh, you know, and in healthcare, they're quite misaligned. The hospital system wants their heads in beds. They want their hospital, hospital rooms full and the operating rooms full. They don't want to be keeping people out and keeping them healthy. That's not actually their aligned interest. However, with the NHS systems of the world, even the Kaisers and the VAs in the United States, there are aligned systems and payment models to keep people well and not just uh, being paying for more diseases and transplants and procedures. So part of it comes at the incentive level, how we pay for care, uh, and even how we incentivize individuals to be much more responsible for owning their own health information, being engaged uh, uh, as well. So in terms of transforming, I think what we need to think about now is sometimes it's follow the money and understand the culture of healthcare. And that goes all the way back to medical school education uh, and the challenges in the U.S. with lobbies. You know, if you have a new example, um, robotic AI managed anesthesia. This was a device invented 10 plus years ago. It would be a good, do a good job of doing basic anesthesia for a colonoscopy. Great technology, probably even better than anesthesiologist. Why did it get killed? The anesthesia lobby was the corporate antibody against that. They didn't want to see the cells replaced by machine in some settings. Hmm. Or now a cardiac exam, you should take a catheter when it means your coronary arteries can now be done with a quick CT scan and the data analyzed in the cloud, a company called HeartFlow, another one called Clearly, give you great insights to your, uh, to your blood vessels. As the interventional cardiologist who normally get paid to do those procedures gonna be happy about now an image-based version. So there's many, many examples where there's amazing solutions to technology, but they don't fit into workflow, don't fit into incentive models and, and, and mindset. So in terms of transformation, I think we need to learn from systems where there is things shifting and then also from other fields, as you've exemplified, where we can see those shifts happen. So in terms of the, the some of these broad shifts, a crisis was always a great uh, catalyst for this stuff. And we saw this with the mRNA vaccines to go after COVID, right? I remember uh, Raymond McCauley saying these mRNA vaccines are the first battle in the last war against disease, right? Um, now, did... For being at kind of the cutting edge of this, did the development of the COVID vaccine surprise you in its speed and so on? Or was it, oh, yeah, this is a natural progression from the decades of work that have been done in this field. So how surprised were you with that? Or was it a natural consequence of what you've seen? 
Well, I had a little early insight. I was actually a postdoc at Stanford with the original founder of Moderna, stands for Modified RNA, which they were going to do to make new stem cells, but that evolved. Um, Derek Rossi was the original founder. And we had at an early version of Next Man Health, the CEO of Moderna back in 2016, I think, before anyone had heard of mRNA for both uh, vaccinations or other approaches. And it's been built on the backs of lots of other research. So while it moved quickly in the, vac in the vaccine world around the pandemic, it wasn't really a totally new technology, but it certainly got unlocked and went in some cases at warp speed. And I think it does really unlock a huge number of possibilities. Of course, not just for uh, infectious disease vaccine, and hopefully we'll see combination ones that do our sort of pan-COVID or pan-influenza or pan-RSV. So you might get one vaccination every couple of years to really match the, the, the emerging uh, infectious disease tides, but also a vaccine that might be personalized against your own cancer risks or against neurologic diseases like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or uh, to vaccine against uh, uh, cardiovascular disease when you have uh, certain genetics or now mRNA bridging with true gene therapy, which we're moving to not gene therapy outside of the body where you take the cells out, and modify them, but where the gene vector goes inside the body, modifies, let's say your liver, cells to not produce as much cholesterol to save folks who have familial high cholesterol challenges from ever developing disease in the first place. So we're at the cusp of some amazing biotechnology uh, and, and, and the pandemic did help unlock some of that, just like it helped unlock crowdsourced clinical trials, telemedicine, new forms of collaboration, virtualized trials uh, and beyond. Let me ask you a question about how do you deal with the regulatory around this? Because the big challenge, you know, I remember, so there was this great story um, that Andrew Gillum, I think, Michael Gillum first talked about at Exponential Medicine, your conference, about how it took something like 260 years to to fully implement the cure for scurvy, right? Because um, it took uh, 50 years for the Navy to believe the guy and another 50 years for them to implement it, 50 years more for the Merchant Navy. And at the end, it was like 260 plus years to get from known cure proven to full implementation. We're down, I think, to about 17 years. Most of that is longitudinal testing and regulatory. With the world moving this quickly, right, we don't have time to do longitudinal testing, say, with the COVID vaccines, which raises lots of issues. How do you how do you deal with that structural problem? Do you just take the time or do you are there ways of shortcutting that that testing process using digital twin or uh, in lab microchips and other things? Talk, talk about that side of it. Sure. I mean, there's amazing innovations, but unless they get through the regulatory and the reimbursement process, it's a bit of a so what. There's a lot happening in digital health. We can talk more about it. I have a whole platform called digital.health where we're trying to match solutions to problems. But back to the timing issue. We're in this exponential age, right? You know, from your genome to your sociome to your metabolome to your microbiome to uh, to proteome, and we can start to blend that information together to hopefully not just uh, give us insights into physiology, but to speed up clinical trials. We're also in the era of internet of medical things. My Aura Ring could be used, or my Fitbit, or Apple Apple Watch when it's charged, uh, or my internet of medical things connected home can be part of the solution for speeding up knowledge and gaining that, not just in the four walls of a traditional clinical trial at a Stanford or Mass General. So what we don't want is just more data. We're, we're in an age of overwhelming data from your radiology, your genome, metabolism, et cetera. The 17 year gap is we get new information. It might be published in the New England Journal, but there's still a 17 year gap between that getting FDA cleared through a process and it being used at the bedside or the website. And we have seen, again, COVID as a catalyst, speed up clinical trials. I got COVID in January of 2021, right before the vaccine came out. And I was looking around on 
you know, what's the latest therapy? And I got a ping on Facebook. Have you recently been diagnosed with COVID? Are you interested in a clinical trial? And I said, well, yes, I am. And 10 minutes later, I had a phone call. Next day, FedEx to me some drugs, a connected blood pressure cuff and an app. And I was part of a clinical trial for fluvoxamine, a generic repurposed drug that seemed to be quite useful early in the pandemic. That sort of new catalyzation of finding the right folks, matching them to trials, being more nimble with digital data um, and, and speeding, you know, not just drugs, but digital therapeutics. It might be an app, uh, it might be a video game for mental health. It might be a drug device combination. And pairing that with the real crux, the FDA or other agencies. So the FDA, to their credit, and they came to early issue versions that, uh, of NextMed Health, learned where's the puck going? How do we right. build software as a medical device? How do we speed up uh, the pathway? And that has happened and not as fast as we need yet, but is, is, is you know, greasing the wheels so that things can move more quickly from invention to action. So let's talk about uh, NextMed, right? Um, uh, first of all, this is, uh, what, what are the dates? It's coming up March 13th to 16th in San Diego at the very historic, iconic Hotel the Hotel Del Coronado, where we did exponential medicine for a decade. And the, the kind of, you know, the modus here, the motive is a lot of healthcare and biomedicine technology is very siloed. I'll go to oncology meetings, cardiologists go to cardiology, to cardiology meetings, I go to oncology, then there's things around pharma and digital health and mental health. It's very rare that you bring different worlds together, both from patients, payers, technologists, inventors, investors. And so the magic of this program is, is breaking open the silos, everything from the Paul Stamos of the world who are looking at psychedelics for mental health, to folks building the next generation of vaccines, to folks using digital twins, to uh, the next generation of video games for mental health, you know, kind of sparking what's the art of the now, what's, what's near coming the next couple of years, and what's really next, the next decade, and how do we take both the mindset, the innovation, the cross-collaboration to, to bring us into this promised health age faster. So, uh, you know, for folks that are watching this, uh, you have to remember something. Major breakthroughs always happen when you cross disparate areas together, right? Every, pretty much every major breakthrough in history. And what Daniel's done with this conference, and I've been to it many times, and every time I don't go, I miss, I miss it like hell because that, that richness of intersections, because you've got regulatory FDA, you've got pharma, you've got clinicians, you've got medical device people, you've got oncologists, you've got the entire ecosystem related to healthcare, plus the technology gurus that can talk through, hey, here's this major breakthrough in sensors over here, how will that apply over there? And that richness, that broth, right, that cocktail that you're brewing becomes incredibly potent for the future. I can't tell you the number of people I've met, Daniel, out there who go, oh yeah, like I got this idea from from going to exponential medicine and seeing Daniel over here because that the the intersections are where all the magic happens. So uh, for those of you who are watching, if you're interested in healthcare at all, and 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 there should be lots of personal reasons and selfish reasons to do so, find your way to this conference. Uh, will it be streamed? We're probably going to do a live stream. So just go okay. to nextbed.health, sign up on the newsletter. You'll get informed. And we also put out all the content in sort of TED Talk-like style. So um, and, and back to Salim's point, you know, people come there and get sparked and they'll see something new. What's worked in India, for example, we'll have Sangeeta Reddy, who runs the Apollo healthcare system, something that might be working in Africa or Israel that could work in other places. Or, um, you know, the folks who are doing gamification cross fertilize with the AI folks and they connect the dots. I mean, several companies and, and innovations have come together. Plus, 
you've got the payers there, the you know big health hospital systems, big insurance plans who see the sometimes the young startups. We have an innovation lab with like sixty early companies that can end up feeding their need and, and matching things. So it really is, yeah, as you mentioned, this sort of um, bundling. Plus, we're at the beach at Hotel Don Coronado. We have a silent disco. We have uh, beach bonfires. It's not your some people call it the Burning Man of medical conferences at a beach. It's really not a conference. It's more of a gathering and a tribe and a and a community that you know is conspiring to to cross collaborate. I think the curation you do of the different dimensions of it because it hits all the senses in different ways is is the most powerful aspect of it. So I absolutely can't wait. I'm just juggling my calendar to see how I can get there. But help by hook or by crook, I'm going to try and find my way there uh, this year. Um, talk us through a couple of the biggest and most exciting breakthroughs that you're seeing out in the world today from your healthcare perspective. What are, if you had to list two things that are kind of blowing your mind in terms of the potential, what would they be? Well, we all know Moore's law. We talk a lot about exponentials and I just want to remind everyone there's Amara's law, which means often that we overestimate the next couple of years, but underestimate the next decade. And that happened with like IBM Watson, 2011. Oh, it was going to start uh, being the doctor for everything overhyped, but a decade on now, AI is really in big data, machine learning, really starting to hit the road and the rubber meeting the road in healthcare, whether it's AI meets radiology or dermatology or, uh, or drug discovery. Um, and now, of course, layered with that is, you know, uh, generative AI, chat GPT, et cetera, which is an example of a platform converging with healthcare to the point where, you know, you can, it's already passing the medical boards and this is already the, you know, chat GPT three, not even four. And now there are versions that Microsoft and other are going to building, which blend with your genomic information and help can be communicate complex elements. Or I can write a, say, write a discharge note for a 85 year old Hispanic male in the language that they'll understand their instructions. Um, so many, 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 many applications of that field that are just coming to bear. Um, there's definitely regulatory and reimbursement challenges, but that's an area where I, I think if I have to see where this is going to synthesize putting my futurist hat on, as I kind of, I don't know, made up this term of you know, generative health, where the Salim healthcare coach and buddy will be different than mine. I might be in a different virtual reality environment or get different music or different coaching to stay healthy or to manage a disease. I might get a different diet or workout program just for me. Or when I'm trying to communicate my medical story, ChatGPT will have looked at all my wearable and other data and communicate that and synthesize it uh, to my clinician or the AI doctor who's going to be part of my next generation chatbot. So I think there's lots of ways we'll start to build these custom healthcare journeys, both for prevention, diagnostics, and therapy. And we're still in the very early ages. And I think it's almost an internet moment. It's going to be very exciting to see where that goes. Of course, now tied to crowdsourcing data and getting folks more engaged in their health, because the challenge of a lot of healthcare, it's one size fits all the same. Who reads that printout from their drug list? Uh, the information that's you know faxed to you, that can all now be in the voice that matches age, culture, language, and engages people in their health journeys from an early point and democratizes healthcare from someone in the savannas of Africa with a general smartphone. They can have the, the chatbot that can help engage them in public health, prevention, diagnostics, and connect them to the, the broader ecosphere. Um, generative health. That just blew my mind because the potential and opportunities there become incredibly powerful. I guess then it comes that right down to what are you optimizing for, right? Are you optimizing for uh, staying safe and, and, and disease-free or illness-free, or are you optimizing for aggressive an aggressive future and a long future? Um, uh, how uh, real do you think is all of the talk around uh, life extension and the escape velocity point, 
right? Uh, Ray Kurzweil, I think, has said we're about eight years away from escape velocity, where per calendar year, you add more than a calendar year to your life on average, and therefore we enter a period of arbitrarily long lifetimes. How real do you think that is? And when do you think that is that point of escape velocity? Great question. Um, you know, some things are coming faster than we might think on this exponential age. Uh, I would say, you know, I'm more interested in health span. We want, you know, 120 to be to the new 60. Uh, some of our friends want to live forever. Forever is a very, very long time. I think we want to focus on quality uh, in life, not just health span, but brain span and social span and spirit span, right? Because, you know, what are you going to be doing when you're 120? What does that mean for society and uh, retirement? Things we've talked about in the past. Uh, but it is getting interesting now. Um, uh, you know, now the, the ability to understand the clocks of aging and what mm -hmm. is aging, not just your wrinkles, your renal function or, uh, you know, gray hair. What is, what is aging? How do you measure that, right? And there's new ways to do that. David Sinclair has published recently some ability to tune the clock and speed it up and slow it down in mice lots of things have been cured in mice yeah um but you know I've heard, I've, uh, I've heard by the way that we have mice in labs on the east coast that are living to the equivalent of 300 years old so that's if that's we can possible. translate those those therapeutics to humans that that has mind-boggling possibilities right? of, of mice and men there's always been a challenge sometimes connecting those dots but that being said, things are moving quickly. The mRNA vaccine elements, the ability to look at your genome and now edit your genome, or companies like Altos Labs, which are kind of trying to do regenerative engineering inside the body using some of those same factors that can make induced pluripotent stem cells. How do you apply those to rejuvenate your liver or your brain or your heart, or the ability to have your own stem cells banked and useful uh, to, to regenerate an organ or manage disease or aging? So aging is, a, I think, still complex and multifactorial, but I think if for those listening, yeah, definitely optimize your health and wellness because in 10 years from now, we might see some very surprising evolutions. We're only 10 years into the CRISPR revolution, for God's sakes, right? Yeah. And see how much that's moved to impact so many different fields. Um, Just on CRISPR for a second, what are a couple of the uh, direct applications of CRISPR that are already out that people may not have heard about? Well, we know that CRISPR, you know, at, at its essence is able to target and swap out different genes. So it has the potential in vivo even to swap out a good gene for a bad gene. Uh, or the the best use case today, and I'm trained as a hematologist, oncologist, and bone marrow transplant doctor. In hematology, we have patients like sickle cell disease and thalassemia. That's one base pair that's often their red blood cell uh, protein in the hemoglobin. And now you can take out the bone marrow from that patient, uh, modify the genes, and put them basically back in their, their, their blood stem cells and cure sickle cell or thalassemia. That's a simple single gene disease. Many diseases have multiple. That's already happening and happened. The next generation will start to do that in vivo. You won't have to do a transplant. Uh, you'll be able to directly inject the genes into the bone marrow. I'm actually doing a project on that with, through the Gates Foundation with the University of Washington to this marrow minor device I developed as a Stanford yeah. fellow, all the way to using CRISPR for diagnostics on your phone to pick up um, COVID or other diseases. So many, many applications of CRISPR and there's other gene therapies that are coming to bear the challenge and the opportunity is how do we leverage them? Are we going to see more CRISPR babies done illegally like happened in China a few years back? Um, how do we you know, put the guardrails on? Um, a mentor of mine, uh, Paul Berg, who is a Nobel laureate at Stanford, just passed away last week. Amazing guy. He was 96. Amazing life. Amazing scientist, curiosity seeker. But when he won the Nobel Prize or before that even for developing molecular biology, this magical godlike ability to put genes together, People said, oh, we can't do that. That's gonna, that's playing God. 
they put together a smart group at Asilomar to look and build the guard guardrails for the, the 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 what's now the biotech age. Hmm. And if we don't do that with AI and CRISPR and ChatGPT, we might end up off the rails. So there's a balance between exciting technology and the Gattaca world. Have you seen Gattaca, which is on the bit dystopian side? So how do we balance those out as a challenge? And with things like CRISPR and AI and uh, uh, other realms, we need to see. You know, be a bit careful about how those move forward. Hey folks, Salim here. I am so excited about our latest launch, the Exponential Organizations 2.0 book. It's a living book. This baby is a living, breathing, always up-to-date source of knowledge on the latest technologies and techniques for transforming organizations and building 10x growth and impact. How do we build a better future using the latest and greatest 21st century techniques? And the best part, you don't have to do anything. You just sign up for our basic tier, which is only $4 a month. And boom, you have instant access plus an AI chatbot interface into the book. You can cancel anytime, but there's more. We have a community of technologists, entrepreneurs, innovators, disruptors, thought leaders that we can exchange ideas with. You can tap into that ecosystem to build your dream. What is your massive transformative purpose? And the book plus the ecosystem in our community is set up for you to help leverage that and build it. So come along. It's a mind-boggling uh, capability that we've built. Uh, trust me on this and come and see us. This is, I think, such the, the really important work of leaders like that you are doing. It's very, very easy to go down a Hollywood dystopian. Almost all of these scenarios in a, in a movie scenario end up very bad dystopian. In, in the AI world, you end up with Terminator or Skynet or The Matrix and the robot overlords take the world. And if you're lucky, you're pets. And if we're unlucky, you're food. You know, it's like that's that's the only way it goes. But the positive aspects get left behind, right? As Peter points out, because we are so geared for looking for the negative that we get stuck in that. And how do you uh, get people over that hump? Because this may be the biggest challenge I see is that people so quickly and naturally and are wired to go to the negative and the fear factor side of it. How do you get them onto that positive side? Is it just repetitive, uh, kind of just keep drumming at them with data? How do you think about that? I think it's about storytelling. Like, let's imagine the art of the possible. It's 10 years from now, right? Everybody on their now, not even smartphone, their augmented reality, Apple Glass version 5, right, has that personal health coach. It's actually very low cost. The knowledge is just in time. And it's 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 sourced from thousands of people just like you and your sort of Google map or ways of healthcare. Um, it's able to pick up diseases at stage zero, kind of like Minority Report, based on your voice biomarkers and your changes in your wearable data and otherable data that kind of gives you that early warning, you know, weeks or months before a heart attack or stroke or cancer. And that's all becoming, you know, democratized and digital and all the five Ds that we all know about so that it becomes democratized around the planet. It becomes uh, almost part of our ecosphere. Um, and then when you do have early signs of a problem, might be from your genomic or the beyond, now a simple end of one personalized vaccine is going to prevent you from ever having that. And that can be done at, at now low cost. I mean, maybe not 10 years is aggressive because of the regulatory and reimbursement challenges we talked about earlier, but kind of showing the art of the possible. I mean, you know, around the planet right now, two billion, three people don't have access to basic surgery. If they have appendicitis, they're out of luck. How do we think about building that AI-enabled operating room of the future that's you know, not replacing the surgeon, but enables in some cases autonomous surgery in places or can up-level anybody to do a cleft lip repair with their augmented reality glasses. Might be going a bit far. But I think it's storytelling and showing the the 
the the what's possible even with today's technology if we connect the dots let alone what's coming in the next decade hmm. so let me ask you about uh the entire metaverse digital twin potential right because now we can essentially model uh, all, almost everything in our bodies with all the data coming out of it. We can create a digital twin. What does one do with that? And what are some of the applications that you're seeing of digital twin technology? Yeah, I'm giving a talk today at Stanford about you know going into the metaverse or the mediverse, M-E-D-averse. <laughs> um, and I, coming from the universe, right? We're all like single data silo to this new, it's not just being in VR headsets, you know, you think about metaverse, but you know, it is a bit synthesized about this idea of what's the buzzword, digital twin, right? I think of it, um, I'm a pilot, I love flying, kind of like the flight simulator. You know, put in the metrics and fly in on, on your computer, an incredible, from the space shuttle to, you know, uh, a Cessna to, a, you know, F-23. It models the environment, the wind, and you're flying and it feels real, as uh, is, is real as you can on a, on a laptop. What if you can import the Salim data set, the Daniel data set, and it's all those omics we talked about to predict how we might fly and how that's affected by the wind and the weather. Um, so that in a simplified way is how I think about the digital twin. It'll enable us to be personalized, proactive, predictive. We'll know what might affect you so you can take early warning or avoid the bad weather. Hmm. It might guide you uh, like GPS does to the right destination or the emergency airport if you have a, have a challenge or a, an engine's out. Um, and it can be, you know, thinking about that in the context of you. Now, maybe that's going to leverage the lab on a chip, you know, using your own IPS drive cells. Maybe it's going to start using um, new forms of ChatGPT to communicate this complex information. Because you could have your digital twin, but what do you do about it? How do you integrate that into the workflow of the individual, the clinician? Who pays for it? Who regulates it? But, you know, big picture, we do have the ability now to take all these new exponential data sets and start to make meaning out of them. Um, lots of challenges, but one example I'll give you is um, many, many of you have heard of the Framingham trials. Those are based um, on how we manage high cholesterol, for example, who gets a statin. That's based on a pretty small population of nurses, mostly in Western Massachusetts, Framingham, Massachusetts, pretty Caucasian European data set. What about all the other mixed populations in the United States that are not Caucasian, Western Massachusetts based? So recently, the NIH, National Institutes of Health, ran this program, it's still ongoing, called the All of Us Trial. A million Americans sharing their genome, their digital exhaust, their medical records. So we could really build a real-time map of what works for an African-American in, you know, Mississippi uh, to Hispanic in, you know, South, South Dakota. You know, all those things are not one size fits all. And part of our digital twin is matching the new data sets with what works for patients or individuals like you so that it can be useful. When when you look at when you look at the future, um, you know there's. Uh, let me put you on the spot a little bit because with a question I've been struggling with. Early on, I remember we used to have a ton of communities like Cure Together or patients like me, where groups of patients having the same disease or illness or conditions could could band together and share stories and anecdotes and therapeutic techniques and vectors, etc. Those have largely vanished or certainly haven't grown in the way that we thought we would. Why do you think that is, and what can we do about that? Well, those are great early examples. I mean, patients like me was a great element. Jamie Haywood and his brother started that after their brother passed away from ALS. It was very focused on severe, very rare diseases like ALS. Most diseases, uh, almost everybody has some medical condition. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, I had plantar fasciitis. You know, my foot hurt. I'm like, oh, what do I do about this? Um, and I was actually helping out a startup out of Israel called StuffThatWorks.Health. 
founded by one of the founders of Waze using very Waze-like user interfaces where they're incentivizing folks to join a community about plantar fasciitis, around psoriasis, around inflammatory bowel disease, around long COVID, now getting hundreds of thousands of people sharing for very common diseases, which are often very uncommon because you might call something diabetes or autism or psoriasis, and it might be very heterogeneous. But now you can learn from other patients like you, or as a clinician, I might see, here's what's going to work like for patients like mine. So we're starting to see the unlocking of that. Again, Amara's Law wasn't perfect 10 years ago, a decade later is now moving at scale and um, we'll start to be and we'll start to become part of our integrated care. So I would check out stuffthatworks.health as an example of a kind of a ways for healthcare where everyone can contribute and learn and built on the backs of those prior type platforms. Because, you know, when I look at, say I have a, if I get a certain condition, the first thing I do is Google it, look it up on various websites, et cetera. And by the time I get to a doctor, I know more about that condition than the doctor does, right? So, What's the future of healthcare when somebody can self-provision most of that to such a huge extent that they know the situation much better than the doctor does by the time they get to that point? How does that play out? Well, here's this early vignette. I mean, many of us had our first virtual visits during the pandemic, but it's like you and me talking on a screen. And maybe if you're lucky, you have some home diagnostic to do your temperature, blood pressure. Uh, there are chatbots out there that are pretty good at doing basic triage, but they ask you at the very beginning, your age, your name, da, da, da. they don't have your medical information or your genome. So just a couple clicks down the road, you'll be able to put in a chat GPT four or five or in a medical version, your entire medical history, your entire genome, all your wearable data. Yeah. When you have abdominal pain, it's going to know whether you had your appendix out or not, or if you're pregnant, uh, you know, and we'll give you a much smarter contextual answer about what to triage. Um, and arguably that's already better than most clinicians at, at figuring out what's going on um, and reading your old notes and taking all sorts of disparate data and again, crowdsourcing that knowledge. So that's where I sort of see things coming together. It's not going to necessarily replace your doctor in all realms, but it'll do a much better job at triage and getting early action. Doesn't this essentially mean the end of the the family doctor? Because I think the, yeah. the, the, you know, any particular condition is so specific now and so you can get so much data about and history from your personal self that the, the, somebody trying to figure it out has no hope uh, in getting you know I remember you once uh, putting on stage saying a stat that still blows my mind right if you're a cancer doctor there are 2,500 new cancer research papers published per day right so you need an AI or some uh, assistant to manage all of that otherwise you have no hope of keeping up with what's going on so how do we, how does the medical profession adapt to this? Or do they just start using the tools uh, themselves? Because uh, that's going to be hard for them also. Well, I always say it's all about the workflow stupid. Uh, you know, that old quote from Bill Gates, it's all about the economy stupid. It's all for the clinician. How does this integrate into their day-to-day -day knowledge set? So clinicians today, myself included, we're like, well, I learned this in medical school. I read this paper in the New England Journal, but I didn't read the other thousand papers. And this is the way I'm going to treat, you know, blood pressure. It's the standard approach or what I remember being trained in residency or some course I might've taken online. The future needs to be just in time updated information that's integrated into the electronic medical record, which is still a terrible platform for most clinicians so that they're reminded that Celine's genetics suggest he would do better on this type of statin rather than another at this particular dose and mm -hmm. it would give them the best outcome and etc right now i don't even see your genetics i don't uh, uh have a way of tracking you when you leave the hospital with your blood pressure i'm still asking you to self-report so this near future will be one where hopefully i get much as a clinician whether i'm the ai clinician or the family doc or the specialist where i'm 
converging those thousands of papers published, your individual data, because it can flow from your next generation smartwatch, which by the way, will do blood pressure and maybe even blood sugar seamlessly, continuously. So we'll have new forms of real streaming information. But today, that's not wider than how healthcare works. So there's a big gap between being able to collect all this data and making it actionable and part of medical education um, and how things get, get paid for. Because is that doc going to want to get paid to use that AI algorithm or that remote blood pressure cuff? Maybe in some systems, but maybe not in others. So really multivariable challenge, but it doesn't mean it's not going to start happening. It doesn't also mean that some clinician and other groups are going to start doing them themselves and break out of the normal, normal mode. Okay. Um, let me delve into two other buckets that I want to get to. One is psychedelics and the other is uh, alternative medicines. Okay. So let's talk about psychedelics first. Um, uh, literally yesterday or the day before, um, John Oliver did a whole sec segment on on psychedelics and therapeutics around psychedelics. Uh, how do you see all of that, and how excited are you by the the use of psychedelics for medical application? Um, well, I just had a conversation uh, with Paul Stamets. We'll be keynoting next Med Health, uh, and it was more like we all aware of magic mushrooms and some of their off-label uses. But now what's exciting is they're going on-label. They're going through platforms like MAPS, which are in a very medicalized, clinical trial, validated, evidence-based way, looking at the impacts of psychedelics from from, from uh, psilocybin to MDMA and others, for particularly for mental health conditions. And there's great data now to support in trials, for example, in very recalcitrant PTSD um, and uh, two doses of uh, MDMA journeys with guidance and a psychologist, you know, basically cure 86% of folks compared to 30% of just have counseling alone or uh, addiction uh, with uh, psilocybin or deep depression. So uh, what's exciting to me is that these are moving from sort of the, the fringe world where they may have been in the past into the open and are being are moving through the proper routes to show that they have really significant benefits. Mm -hmm. uh, not you know it might be overhyped in some realms. We still need to look at some of the downsides. Ketamine, which is another uh, class of medications now used commonly for severe depression. Some folks are getting home telemedicine versions of them and getting addicted and uh, having bladder and other side effects. So I think we need to be still careful and mindful, but. Given the huge challenges and unmet needs in mental health as a category, I think there's there's huge uh, huge potential upsides. We still need to do it carefully and and have an evidence base. You know, the one of the things I remember being incredibly excited about around psychedelics was uh, at some sessions we had at Singularity University. I think it was might have been Chris Descharm uh, that you brought in that was doing uh, fMRI scans of people under psychedelic in psychedelics because. You know, in the 60s, when we first got into this, people had no idea. They were just chucking it down and, and kind of anecdotally seeing the outcomes. And he was able to say, when you take this amount of this uh, psychedelic, it affects this neural circuit. And you can see it right here in real time. And that feedback loop is infinitely interesting because now you have a way of measuring and think. If we take that down, now we can know exactly what dosages you say. Let me just go back to a stat you threw out that really floored me. So if somebody has severe PTSD and they get therapy, just therapy, 30% um, get helped. Therapy plus MDMA gets 86% cured. Is that Was that roughly what you said? I have to look up the exact paper, but it's roughly a, a huge differential. Um, and this is, again, with proper psychologists and psychiatrists involved and mm. PTSD. We know it's risk for suicidality and other elements, uh, folks back from war and other traumas. Um, these are folks who had 
tried and tried and were still uh, in deep PTSD. And counseling is helpful for some, but counseling with appropriate one or two MDMA elements integrated in had a huge impact. Right. Uh, and then there's other evidence bases around, uh, you know, uh, psilocybin and uh, addiction or severe depression uh, or other realms. And then there's the microdosing side of the equation, which might have helpful for folks um, with everything from ADHD to just wanting to help optimize their cross connections. And I'm not to be clear, uh, advocating for any of these. I just think they're really exciting and worth studying. In fact, Paul Stamos did a crowdsource study published in Nature, a platform called Quantified Citizen, where folks could self-report how they were doing uh, mental health and otherwise with microdosing, and they were able to get a huge validated data set to show some, some significant benefits. And that's an example back as we talked about earlier, new ways of doing connected clinical trials uh, to speed up knowledge and, 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 and insights. You know, the the fascinating aspect, and by the way, I spoke at the microdosing conference in uh, in Miami uh, last year. I interviewed Sylvia Benito on some of the work that she's doing because she applies psychedelics to uh, investment theses, which is like totally uh, out there. Um, there is some unbelievable potential in that. I guess the big question is how do you bring that out in a in a studied uh, scientific feedback loop type of way. Let me bridge that to the alternative medicine uh, challenge, right? You have Chinese medicines and Ayurvedic medicine and homeopath homeopathic medicines, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's a whole other vector to, uh, uh, to healthcare. And I liken it to uh, the difference between Western science and Western philosophy and meditation. It's a completely different way of studying reality. How do you, coming from the background, because you kind of bridge some of these areas more than most, how do you think about alternative medicine and the potential around that? And how do we even start to bridge the gap between these two sides? I mean, the gap is narrowed. I mean, we now have the Medicare Medicaid pays for acupuncture. <laughs> uh, you can go to a Kaiser and get acupuncture, and we see it has significant benefits in neuropathy and even being used in dentistry instead of anesthesia. So there's been now definite proven effects of what used to seem like very uh, alternative approaches that have come into traditional care. At the same time, there's a lot of snake oil out there about, you know, use this crystal and it'll help this or use this probiotic uh, without evidence bases. You know, you can go to any uh, pharmacy now and see a whole shelf of things that are not FDA clear, but may help you with this or that. And sometimes that's in the alternative realm. The big picture I think acupuncture is an example. We can learn from these fields that have been evolved evolutionary over thousands of years. Even herbs from uh, the the sort of uh, uh, the the Amazon that have been used and developed by by the medicine men and women over over eons. Now we can understand what's the active ingredient and translate those into FDA clear drugs. That's that's already happened. So we can learn from these things that have manifested and been evolved over eons. At the same time, being careful to show that these have an evidence base and not being, oh, we're Western docs. We need to ignore all that. Hmm. You know, um, uh, like my family, weirdly, was raised completely on homeopathic medicine, right? And I and I have personal experience of the unbelievable outcomes that have been. I've never had antibiotics as a result, um, and I've, I do pretty okay. Yet, when you do any kind of clinical studies on that, they fail completely. So there's this incredible gap that I find, homeopathic medicine may be the most extreme, of a huge anecdotal evidence and zero clinical evidence, right? I guess you you just 
keep plugging away till you figure out where there are the matches. As you said, in acupuncture, we can now do tests and studies and where's the feedback loops and can we narrow down the observables to some area that gives you some prescriptive certainty as to what happens. Um, Are there some areas in alternative medicine that you're very excited about because you're seeing kind of the cutting edge of what's crossing over from theory into practice? Well, that's a great question. Uh, homeopathy is a fascinating thing that has, you know, this is where you dilute the drug down a billionth time and it's supposed to have some effect. And when it's been studied very rigorously, doesn't seem to have an effect in most cases. But we've studied the placebo effect as well. What you believe, the brain-body connection has huge implications. So if you're taking that element, in some cases, that might have a, a significant role, even if you know it's a placebo. So that's a whole other topic. <laughs> this, is, this is the part that always blows my mind. I, I remember this study, right? They said uh, to the group divided people into three groups. One was given the real thing. The one was given the placebo, uh, um, and but told it was the real thing. And the third group was given a placebo and told it was a placebo, and had the same effect as the people that had the placebo and didn't know. Right. It's, it's, so how do you how do you reconcile that? What the, how do you think about that as a causal explanation? Is it triggering the body's natural mechanisms and bringing that to the fore? How do you how do you what's the explanation you have in your head for that? <laughs> the power of the belief uh, piece. Even you know, take the red pill. This is going to help you. Uh, can be powerful. And back to sort of that's the alternative. But there's now realm of transformative technologies. The vagus nerve, for example, the mind body connection seem the vagus is key. Ways to interact with that, whether it's tapping or using ultrasound or mindfulness or breathing techniques. You know, all these things have overlapping elements. So like comparative religion, right? Um, right. They're called different names, but they seem to have the same sort of pathways at some realm and how they impact our brain or our belief systems. So I don't definitely understand all this and how it works, but as we start to learn better how we can even use electricity as medicine, you know, um, whether that's to treat a tremor or to treat depression, you know, there's now pacemakers for the vagus nerve that treat depression or understand the microbiome and its role in, in cognition, whether it's risk for Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or uh, autism. Um, those are all fitting into this sort of congealed loop. I think big pictures, I mean, way out again, you know, medicines, traditional Western medicine, one drug, one issue, Healthcare and body is complex. The immune system, we're starting to unlock how it works, the immunome, not just the genome, how we might uh, program ourselves for resiliency, both on the mental health side, uh, as well as um, um, on prevention side. All those things aren't going to be about one drug or one intervention. I think it's this idea of holistic care. We have our friend Dean Ornish, for example, who's been able to reverse heart disease and now even early Alzheimer's with diet meditation, uh, love and connection, all those things play a role and social connection, just to mention, right? Love and connection, friends, family, uh, whether it's the blue zones where they study folks who live into the nineties, very healthily. There's a lot of ties that aren't just the drug or the wine or the diet, but tying to very complex, um, social psychodynamic issues that are are really important to our health. Uh, just a personal anecdote. I was in, uh, uh, Dubai for an event last year. And there was a fellow from Silicon Valley who's done a ton of, uh, launched a ton of healthcare companies that have gone public. And he was tapping his head with a, a carbon, a pure carbon stick of pure carbon with the idea that it it brings in certain energies via that. that. And you're like, okay. Um, and, you know, it's so hard to delve into where the boundary between uh, a prescriptive uh, studied scientific basis for anything and 
the kind of wild snake oil because half the time what you believe does actually manifest and where do you go with that it's it's just you know i, I want to give you credit for this because you're one of the few people that come from the the allopathic side that really look into and embrace fully the alternative side and say hey let's look at it and wherever we can find um uh, um, uh training sets or real data sets that show you evidence then let's bring it over right like yeah, whatever works it. bring it trust but verify how do you trust do it but verify for tapping or some of these new i mean you get some in covid was a perfect catalyst for in some cases snake oil people saying you know whether it's take ivermectin or uh or exosomes you know you know maybe some of them work in the right settings but we need to be rigorous about testing them out and not just having some charismatic even physician in many cases say this is the best thing since sliced bread hmm. uh, actually <laughs> i have a i have a covid question for you okay mm -hmm. so i kind of uh, was asking you and Divya and, and Raymond all a ton of advice early on because you guys were at the cutting edge of the various therapeutics and then the vaccine came out, etc. Um, my rough conclusion about the vaccines, because there's lots of chaos on, and noise on both sides there, is that the number of deaths, uh, there was a massive number of deaths that the COVID vaccine prevented. And yes, there are uh, uh, excessive symptoms in certain cases, uh, myocarditis or whatever, but that the net benefit of the vaccines was actually unbelievably huge compared to the increase of this. Would you concur with that or do you have a different way of framing that discussion? 100%. I mean, the, the, the delta in mortality and morbidity, morbidity from folks who've had the vaccine, especially importantly get your new bivalent booster okay. um, that doesn't just dramatically reduce the impact of getting covid but the impact of long covid which we're yeah. learning a huge long-term issue it's from deadly and and it's really devastating to many individuals families etc so there's a lot of noise out there the infodemic side of the pandemic has been really damaging the political divide i mean don't need to get political here, but if you go to certain zip codes that are red versus blue, dramatic differences in mortality and morbidity based on what news show you watched or what affiliation you had. But yes, I would concur wholeheartedly that the vaccines have and will continue to save many lives, including old school vaccines, measles, mumps, rubella, that in some cases are not being given to kids and we're seeing resurgence. Polio might be I'm, coming back. Polios, what they have found polio in the New York City water, right? That's just that, I mean, I have an aunt that suffered badly from polio and, and many of us have people in the two generations ago and you think you've handled something and boom, uh, it, it, the, because of the stupidity in some cases, it just comes back. But I would just on that point, yeah. we can talk about fancy health technologies, CRISPR and microbiome manipulation and brain computer interfaces and all these exciting things at the convergence. But the biggest impact on our health and health span has been public health measures, sewage systems, vaccines, clean water. Um, and the biggest impact on health is often socio, the social determinants of health. You know, just to make the point of many disparities were highlighted through the pandemic, African-Americans, Hispanics who already had bad underlying health care and conditions had huge deltas in comparing one zip code to another in terms of their uh, outcomes from the pandemic and other elements. So while the technology side is important, we need to understand social engineering, social and digital determinants of health. And some of the technology, whether it's your digital app and chatbot that can you know talk to you in your language, can play a big role in lowering disparities and democratizing health and medicine you know, around the planet. I think what you're summarizing there is that the Jamaicans have it right. Don't worry, be happy. Well, being happy helps your health, but but 
but to the point where we can be a little happier uh, by spreading, you know, spreading the wealth of including vaccines. A lot of them are not accessible in, in many places. Mm-hmm. We're talking about doing X prize for uh, making vaccines hyper locally, you know, so yeah. uh, literally get the new data, 3D print that vaccine at a local uh, shopping mall and get it distributed, for example, that would help lower disparities. Um, and then again, back to, you know, the the power of what you can do on a smartphone and home diagnostics or the medical tricorder X prize we ran 10 years from now, everyone should have the smart personalized AI clinician in their pocket, plus the diagnostic tools uh, to both be proactive, preventative, and when they need care, connect them to that. Yeah, just so people are aware, the tricorder X prize was a medical device that would do a better job of diagnosing something like 15 medical conditions better than a board certified doctor um, was i think i have the parameters roughly correct yeah, it was, it was so, kind of spurred by star trek that idea where we wanted right. and, and, and what i thought i remember the joke i would make about that is you're, you're gonna have a field day if you're a hypochondriac with this thing because <laughs> you're gonna constantly be testing yourself and going a device must be wrong etc cetera, etc cetera. or you're more reassured you're not always checking your pulse because your smartwatch can do that i mean just anything anybody can hear do now today who has an Apple Watch or Fitbit, you can start to look at your longitudinal data. The future yeah, of health yeah. and medicine won't be coming to see Dr. Kraft and I uh, look at your labs today and your blood the, pressure today. I, I, I find the feedback loops of these things. So I have a Fitbit and I've been watching my sleep tracking over the last year or so. And it's incredible. I will wake up in the morning and go, ah, that felt like a 74. And I'll go to the app and it'll be pretty much correlated and and so you get your own feedback loop going around this and it makes you very very aware of your own self which is always a good thing i guess yeah that's the quantified self salim looking at his data i looked at my aura ring this morning and i the power went out last night so i got an early night's sleep i had definitely a better sleep score because i went to bed early and i'm mindful of that sleep score when i'm off that's quantified self we see that data but the future is i call it quantified health that data is going to flow to your doc your ai coach your nutritionist and we will be able to use that data and especially when we crowdsource it to know these are again the signs of getting off track or here's the particular nudges that you need to get and optimize your health span so you can get to that escape velocity in 10 years where we're going to have some new magic cocktail that'll start to reverse your aging and that aging cocktail may not be one size fits all either um so as you know, I've been developing this little technology called IntelliMedicine, where we can 3D print your personalized polypill. And that polypill for longevity might be different between the two of us, uh, or it might be the cocktail of meds you need to manage your blood pressure or your diabetes in a much more highly tuned way. So I think we're going to enter this age where sort of just in time, we're going to match your data. It's going to be continuously adapting to what you might need for prevention or for diagnostics or therapy, and we'll be a learning engine. Hmm. Um, what What preventative or techniques do you use? So if you're the viewer and uh, and the, the if I could say, hey, Daniel, what should you, would you recommend two or three things that I should just go do or use? What would you say? I mean, it still goes back to basics. Let's not go fancy. Number one, optimize your sleep. And there's lots of ways to learn to do that. And any, any wearable or otherable can start to give you insights on that. And giving that insight can be helpful, including your heart rate variability and how stressed you might be over time. So optimizing sleep, mindfulness, which I need to do a better job of, and you certainly are a better practitioner of, has lots of benefits. So those are two easy ones. Exercise, the best drug of all time is 30 minutes of exercise, like three to five times a week, has huge benefits on mental health for cancers, depression, et cetera, et cetera. So those are all the the basics. 
I'm not a big advocate of, you know, taking all these multivitamins, et cetera. Most of us have pretty normal metabolism and you don't need mega doses of, of anything. So I mean, caveat emptor, be a little careful with over-optimizing on any one magic uh, uh, nutrient. Um, and then the other pieces we've learned about long, happy, healthy, don't worry, be happy is, you know, social connection, friends, family, community, those have a really interesting role. Smoking uh, obviously is a bad one, but being socially isolated is worse than smoking uh, in terms of health outcomes. So those are multifactorial pieces, whether it's volunteering at your church or synagogue or school, all the way to, you know, staying in touch with your old and new friends have real significant health benefits. And then finally, it's um, now you can get new proactive insights. On the tech side, you can get your full body MRI done. You know, it's expensive, uh, but platforms like Pernuvo or Human Longevity Incorporated. You can now get a blood test called Grail that will screen for early cancers. That just came out. We almost did an early cancer detection XPRIZE. Those technologies have evolved where for under $1,000, still mostly out of pocket, you can, can screen for early cancers and have something to do about those. So those are a few of the things I would start with um, you know, uh, before trying to get uh, too transhuman. <laughs> Awesome. All right. For all of our health, I know you have a, a, a you have to get to Stanford for a talk, uh, which you've given us a bit of a summary on. Uh, Daniel Kraft, can't thank you enough for being with us. Uh, everybody get your ass to NextMed. Uh, NextMed.health. NextMed.health, March 13th to 16th at the Hotel Del Coronado in San Diego. Uh, I'm trying to juggle my schedule like hell to get there. Daniel will definitely be there. If you're interested in all in this domain, that is the place to be. And I'll give you one other resource uh, that I've just recently built and launched, still early. It's called digital.health. And okay. it's a website where mostly for clinicians today, but there's all these digital tools out there from wearables and other bowls for everything from mental health to cardiology issues to you pick it. So if you go to digital.health and you go in a little search box there, you can find existing solutions that might match a problem you have or that you could work with on, with your clinical team if you want to track your blood pressure uh, or you have a kid with ADHD and you want to find a digital therapeutic that's FDA cleared as a, as a, as a tool that's better than a drug. So there's there's a lot out there now, and part of the challenge. So you're bringing decade, it all together in this one place called Digital Health. Yeah, for more of the digital layers, but now more drugs and devices and data are all connecting. So it's not just going to be digital health; it's our new realm. We don't call it digital banking or digital entertainment, um, but we do have this new set of tools that, again, many clinicians aren't aware of, and many patients aren't as aware of either that can be useful today. You don't need to wait for the future to occur. You can be part of that catalyzation and then using those. Uh, to, to even educate your medical teams. So it's an exciting era. Next Med Health is kind of this platform, not just a once a year get together, but a, a innovation community where we can all, whether you're a doctor, biotech person, patient, investor, cross collaborate. And I, I know we're going to talk with the EXO about connecting the dots there as well. Absolutely. So uh, folks, nextmed.health and digital.health. And uh, if I had to summarize how I think of you, Daniel, you are the top double domain TLD of health. So you, your your name should be Doctor Dot Health, and then it would go right. Daniel Kraft, I better, I better go work out now. Okay. There you go, Daniel Kraft. Thank you so much for being with us. Awesome discussion, and let's continue again because I've got a hundred more questions, but we don't have time today. Thanks, Celine. I am so excited to announce the launch of our new OpenEXO platform. It's a game changer for those of us who are passionate about building a better future through the breakthroughs of new technology, plus new mechanisms for exponential organizations. First things first, the platform is home to the amazing Exponential Organizations 2.0 book, a living book, which means it's constantly updated with the latest case studies and the greatest breakthroughs in technology 
ChatGPT, for example, is incorporated into the book already. With a basic membership of just $4 a month, you have access to all of the resources, 700 plus case studies. If you're not satisfied, you can cancel any time. And it actually features a job board to help you connect with like-minded individuals, plus an AI curated news feed that's head and shoulders above everybody else. So why not join today? Be part of a community that's working together to build a future. And for those of us who are ready to go full throttle, our premium membership offers even more perks. You'll have access to the courses and masterminds, communities of experts and thought leaders who are changing the game and building exponential organizations to transform the world. So what are you waiting for? Uh, join us today and let's build a future together.